Sex between human dolphins isn't unusual. But families who wish to delight under the glow of hot wires sealed in a vacuum should go to Warsaw, and those who want to go to Poland should not. It was on display in the bottom of a locked filing cabinet, stuck in a disused lavatory with a sign on the door saying, Beware of the leopard. leopard, leopard. Welcome to Beware of the Leopard. You have been diverted. Do not be alarmed. Be very, very frightened. I'm Mark Stedman, and you can sing to my cat if you like. Hey doll, is this guy boring you? Why not talk to me instead? I'm from a different planet. And he's he's Danny Smith, incidentally. <laughs> I'm John Hickman, and I'm not going to try and top that. Oh my gosh. All right. We're rattling our way through the D section, so let's kick off with a four-legged friend. Arthur made an allusion to having a dog in the first radio play and in the book, so I have to wonder, John... What happened to Arthur's dog? The animals in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy lead all sorts of interesting parallel lives, don't they? So you, you've got your you've got your pet mice, your Frankie and Benji, who obviously went on to run uh, uh, a chain of <laughs> out of town pizza restaurants, a popular uh, yeah popular yeah, eateries. at the out of town yep. mall next to the cinema and the bowling alley. There's uh, Frank, <laughs> Frankie and Benji's. <laughs> It's it's the, it's the UK's number one battery park restaurant. <laughs> um, and then uh, the dolphins, who I think we might be talking about later on as we're on the Ds, um, you know, that they, they've escaped as well. So I'd like to think that um, Arthur's dog, if we're going to accept that he's got one, I'm not sure how we feel about that in terms of canon. Um, uh, well, you're, you're a radio man, aren't you, Mark? So if it's been said on the radio, is it? Well, it's, it's in both. It's it's mentioned in both the book and the radio series, and it is three words, and that's all it is. So he says, I woke up this morning and thought I'd have okay. a nice, relaxed day, do a bit of reading, brush the dog. So I think we could uh, we, we could build ourselves uh, a scenario where Arthur's dog has got off planet as well and therefore survived. Um, perhaps it's a small dog that's recently eaten a fleet of um, warships. Ah, oh, now that's a lovely thought. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean... We, what's weird is in, in the span of four books, uh, we can either believe that Douglas just decided to rewrite history, or we can believe that the cat turned into a, uh, the dog turned into a cat because he finds a dead cat in his house. Um, yes, he in, does. In, in book four when he returns to Earth. So. Who knows? Maybe the cat ate the dog. It's, it's like it's like when they put um, it's like when they put a baby in a sitcom and then um, they run out of funny about babies, so they have to forget there's a baby, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Every so often they'll throw you a bone for continuity. Yes. Where's Ben? Oh, he's at the baby baby centre. Like, oh, look, a magic whistle. <laughs> um, I think that let's face it, if he did have to write another book, if it survived, then it's like right, I'm going to write another Hitchhiker's book. He would have been pouring through the old ones. For any loose ends that he didn't end up tying <laughs> up and elaborating into a further plot point, so there may well have been a good half a book on that dog. <laughs> should he have lived? So it could have been quite good fun to have um, picked up the story in book. Um, which book would it have been, Danny? Six. Book six, which would have been Douglas's book six. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, it would have been quite quite nice to pick up the story of his dog. Maybe have a um, uh, a journey home, uh, but through space. With the dog picking up a few other animals along the way, maybe he would have just waited outside Douglas, uh, outside Arthur's house, like the dog in Futurama, Aww. and just stayed there for his. Yeah, it's one of the saddest. Great things Fry is Bobby in space. Ever in a cartoon, 
but yeah, no, that's a fantastic idea. That that idea of like he's he's took somewhere far away and he has to get home to Earth, even though Earth doesn't exist because he doesn't know because it's dark. Oh, maybe he can find a parallel Earth. Yeah, but it's that's a great idea because yeah, I I, I hope that Adams would be able to talk about um all the conservation stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah, in like a really coded way and and like endangered species because he would literally be the last dog in the world uh, in the universe. Yes. Right? Yes. So, so yeah, I that would that would be really. Cool, oh, wouldn't it be heartbreaking if if he um, came across with the perfectly normal beasts onto Lumelia just as Arthur had flown off? Oh, dude! Oh, so there's there's this whole parallel story yes. that is intertwining. Like he's always just one move behind. Like he's following Arthur. He's picking up Arthur's scent. Oh. And he's he's always just you know like he gets to the restaurant at the end of the universe just before they've jumped in the in the uh, oh. in in the in the spaceships and and you know and and he gets back to prehistoric Earth and he hitches like oh gets you in the feels I'd 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 love that as well if if somebody put a Babel fish in his ear so <gasps> there's like whole sections recorded from how dogs think like higher intelligences speak yes yes so it's it's so it's all like me food now love. Sleep now. Bye. There was a book. Um, I, when I was a kid, my favourite, um, certainly one of my favourite authors was Nicholas Fisk, and he had a book called Hole in the Head, which I think I never finished, but I, I was enjoying it at the time. And one of the things in there, they, um, it was about a research facility, and one of the things that they did is they manufactured this prototype device that they c- fitted to, um dogs and it allowed them to speak but like he was he was a i think i feel like he was a writer who wrote for and it might have just been me projecting because i read i'm gonna be a humble brag i read slightly older than my age bracket when Mm -hmm. i was a kid and but i always felt like he was writing for slightly older anyway because it's really dark because he he describes how like the face like contorts and wrenches and the head moves in a way that it really shouldn't um when it's trying to speak and it says like really basic things and i've just had a flashback with you describing that like yeah it's uh it's not quite the vision of up that was uh <laughs> that was given to us i've just had a thought as well that whole fantastic voyage um was done really well in a comic called we three by grant morrison oh, oh. And it's about a rabbit, a cat, and a dog. And they go into a pub. And they're massively, massively cybernetically ad, uh, advanced weapon systems. But they're also a cat, dog, and a rabbit <laughs> trying to get home from where they were stolen from. Oh, wow. That sounds ace. It is. It, the, like, uh, the, the art is fantastic and gorgeous and like... Um, like that's and the comic is super decompressed, so it's like like proper Japanese comics with massive panels and and like really fine detail in places, but not much in others. Um, and the the dog does speak a little bit of human, and it is that kind of good dog food now kind of yeah. So mm. that but in space with Douglas Adams' humor, um, talk, like using it as a vehicle to talk about conservation issues is a book I would want to, would want to read. The Douglas Adams space version of the animals of Farthing Wood. <laughs> I've never read that. Is that is that a, what is that a good thing? It's a kids' book, uh, and it was a TV BBC animated TV series. 
um, in which a bunch of animals who can talk and they all have uh, the, all their names just the names of what the animal is, um, which gets problematic because I think like they just assume that all the male characters are just called like fox and badger, and then the the email. Uh, well, I, well, anyway, I, it's a brave person calls their um, calls their children's books "Animal of Farthingwood" because that's just one letter removal away from a joke. Yeah, and yet it never occurred to us as as kids. We lapped that stuff up because in certain there's a there's a farting lane, which is a bit like dog dog poo lane. Yes, um, uh, my my parents live off Twatling Road, <sighs> and from one adorable animal to another. Dolphins are the second most intelligent life form on Earth, with mice taking the top spot. They tried to alert mankind of the impending destruction of the planet, but their warning was misconstrued as an attempt to punch a football while singing the Star Spangled Banner. Danny, what might our world have been like if we'd found a way to communicate with the dolphins? What could they have taught us? Well, um, I think Adam kind of references it, but um, as uh, like he highlights how. Um, industrious our society is and how exploitative and how we are focused on work so uh, he uses uh, the dolphin society how they mostly play all the time and they're quite hedonistic um to highlight how industriousness and how, how we've got this work fetish and stuff but what he doesn't mention is that they are very very hedonistic and um sexually so also so I think our attitudes towards dolphins would have been tempered by, like, when does this technology happen? Because if this technology happens pre-60s, mm. we would have been appalled at what the dolphins have got to say to us. You want us to fuck? What? You want put our fingers in your blow? What? No. Uh uh, and and also that dolphins are are, um, are homosexual, so they would have been preaching uh, quite some some quite woke ideas that we might not have yet have been ready for. They're bisexual. Okay, <laughs> bi dolphin erasure is an issue, Mark. And you <laughs> sorry, just, you just did it. <laughs> no, you I'm just, sorry. You just done a, a bi dolphin erasure on me. Um, I'm so sorry. Yeah, no, they're, they're 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 super they're super bisexual. So my my posit is. If it would have happened pre-50s um, and we somehow got technology to talk to dolphins, we would have split. I think society would have split roughly down the middle. People that are like, yes, we should play all day and fuck each other willy-nilly. And the other people go, no, that's bad and wrong. And and there would have been two different casts of people. And maybe we would have had different tribes and maybe we would have expanded and had a different world than we do now. Would the, um, would the people who would have first been testing the equipment to talk to the dolphins, would they not have been part of official culture and therefore would have enforced a kind of a moral majority rule and basically just shot all the dolphins in the face. I disagree. I feel like um, scientists like that would have been on the fringes of, I think a lot of, a lot of time when you get deep, people who are deeply into a particular topic, they tend to be quite obsessive and often they tend to be not always, but I, I think they tend to be the more progressive. And so I think you would find um, you you would certainly have some people you know who disagree, but I reckon you'd you'd find that actually they would be they'd be quite open to it because they're in science, arguably because they don't know how to talk to girls. That's a gross generalization, and coming from someone who doesn't know how to talk to girls, and possibly because they want to fuck a dolphin, yeah, eminently possible. I 
I say this because this is a fact. A woman released her memoirs um, about the research that she did in the 60s yes. with a dolphin. And she admitted that she had sex with a male dolphin quite often. Yes. As part of the research. I've heard that. And that was a communication research project, wasn't it, Dan? Yes. Yes, it was. Dolphins are kinky buggers. I've got a list here of dolphin sex facts if you want. I want. Okay. <laughs> I don't think I do. <laughs> There's a guy called David Linden, professor of neuroscience at John Hopkins University in Baltimore. He observed the male bottlenose dolphin had found, his quotes, perhaps the most creative form of animal masturbation. And that form was, can you guess what it was? No, I don't, I, I don't, my mind was pure before this conversation. I don't want to. Wrapping a live wriggling eel around its penis. How did he wrap, how did a dolphin wrap an eel very carefully. How did that work? Where there's a willy, there's a way, John. <laughs> <laughs> Dolphins are the, essentially the same as most males, where when left alone with any object, they look at it through several lenses. And one of those lenses eventually will be a sexual one. Yeah. You know that. You know the old joke about um, I never trust a man that when left alone with a tea cosy doesn't pop it on his head. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'd go for as far as... Give him another three hours, and I don't trust a man that wouldn't think about fucking <laughs> Now, this is something that we're recently discovering in millennials. Okay. Um, but this is dolphin behaviour. <laughs> Janet Mann, a professor of biology and psychology at Georgetown University, found that male bottlenose dolphins tend to engage in same-sex relations early in life and then use the bonds that they form to hunt for females as they get older. Oh, so like growing down? Yeah, so essentially they participate in a bit of... Uh, I'm trying to be. Uh, I'm trying not to use too many sex words. Uh, with you've already uh, with... said fuck about nine times. All oh, right, so they fuck their mates and then they go trawling for women later as wingmen. That's that's essentially. Mm. And is that is there some sort of hierarchy worked out through the earlier engagements? Well, uh, from what I can make out, because I've been reading a lot about dolphin sex, um, dolphins tend to have gangs of mates, and then when a dolphin is about to come into like sexy time matey time they kind of swim around them and protect them from other gangs because other gangs will find if they haven't got one they'll go and find one so those bonds that they form when they're younger by all fucking each other is um essentially what they do to make mates so they can make mates uh and now it's time to get all shook up In the final book of Adam's five-part trilogy, Ford and Arthur ride the perfectly normal beasts from Lamuella to the domain of the king. Now, we all know which king Adam's was on about. So, John, how does this stack up against other sci-fi properties that have claimed to know where Elvis is? Does it work that Adam's never explicitly mentions Elvis by name? I thought this was a bigger thing than it it was. And when I started thinking about all all the other properties that use... Elvis, there was only a couple that came to mind. Um, so we put um, Armageddon the Musical in a few weeks back as our um, as our audible pick. And um, Elvis is the main character in that. And it is our Elvis and he is out in space and time having adventures. Um, there's, a, there's a really good bit of Elvis action in uh, the Red Dwarf episode Meltdown, although that's actually a simula- uh, simulated Elvis. It's a, it's a, it's a wax droid. Um, but they have, a, they have a lot of fun with that because um, they draw on the Elvis soldier um, to make him quite militaristic. So he's the only uh, wax droid who's got um, army um, 
connections and ideas. So he's he's actually quite militaristic. Um, does anyone remember that episode? Kinda, yeah, yeah. Again, kinda. So it's sort of it's sort of Westworld with droids with limited programming loops, and they've broken their programming loops, and then they're ending have end up having a war between the goodies of Waxworld and the baddies of Waxworld. So you've got uh, Stan Laurel and Elvis fighting Hitler and Mussolini, which is which is quite good fun. <clears throat> But the Elvis character becomes, um, Rimmer takes over their army and becomes their general because the goodies are getting beaten. And Elvis becomes his, um, his sort of sergeant stroke aide and, um, yeah, does employ loads of ideas about Elvis being in the military, but whilst wearing his jumpsuit, he has a couple <laughs> of really good lines. Like when he takes, um, I think it's, uh, Lister and Cat prisoner and he says, um, he says, you've been really great prisoners. You really have, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is really, really nice. But there's, there's not a lot else. Beyond that, actually, when you kind of dig into it, that actually does this. We have a we have a, a, a meme in society about Elvis being taken off into space, but it's not played with that well. The most interesting thing that I found when I was um, going through this is that um, there's actually some people who have applied the same trope to Buddy Holly, mm. and there's a, there's a novel called Buddy, Buddy Holly is Alive and Well on Ganymede. Oh wow! I think that Elvis in space appears a lot more regularly than um, you can actually pull off the top of your head. It appears as like an in-joke in a lot of space fiction, and I genuinely can't... The only one that I can think of at the moment is Toe Jam and Earl, the computer game. Yes! <laughs> but around that time, like any time there was a space thing, there would always be kind of an Alvis-esque character in the background. There's also uh, there's a line in Independence Day when they're standing on top of the tower. Yes! Where they say, oh God, I hope they're going to bring back Elvis. There's also a line in Men in Black where uh, Tommy Lee Jones says uh, something along the lines of Elvis isn't dead, he just went home. Oh, yes. So, yeah, there's loads of little in-jokes like that. And what what really interests me, you know how we're forgetting Elvis? They were doing um, studies, um, media studies, in fact, John. Um, mm. And culturally, we're forgetting who Elvis is. Eventually, we're going to cross the Elvis, Elvis event horizon and there's going to be almost nobody that knows who Elvis was. As in literally people who were alive and met him? or No, no, like uh, like generationally, we're just breeding out Elvis. Okay, I'm gonna. I'm just going to uh, ask a quick question then. Who's Napoleon? Yeah, but you, like Napoleon has an important part to play in history. Cultural cultural uh, icons tend not to. Who's William Shakespeare? Uh, Shakespeare, yeah. But Who's Dickens? Name five. Chaucer? Fave, fave movie, uh, five movie actresses from the 40s. That I grant you, but uh, those are people, I think, who who burned very brightly and then uh, disappeared, and we have the same thing now. We, we, can, we can point to the same names in our culture... Um, uh, you know who's uh, for for example who's Jason Lee? He was he was going to be really big for a time. Um, like there are people that we can point to in 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 our culture now uh, that would fall under that. But I I I I know we've discussed this before, but I don't buy it. Okay, so um, just go back to Shakespeare for a sec. Um, Shakespeare is uh, Joe Fines in a dinghy with Gwyneth Paltrow. Shakespeare is um, a guy who didn't write some plays. We don't. We don't know who Shakespeare is. He's 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 a hundred percent an empty sign that we're just pouring things into. Um, okay, Dickens. Um, no, no, but I, I think I think what's I've not I'm not familiar with this with this theory, but it, the the way it's been presented here, well, we're forgetting Elvis. We're forgetting an essential, real Elvis 
but we have got lots of symbols of Elvis that we are rearticulating and we're recontextualizing and we're pouring other meanings into. So there are Elvis shapes, but there's no Elvis. So we have forgotten Elvis because he's so many things all at once and, and he's so many things and he's nothing. I think that's probably what the people are saying. Elvis wasn't great. There are better singers. There are better performers. There are more interesting performers. There's The only thing culturally important about Elvis is that he was culturally important. And that kind of uh, echo is going to collapse in on itself sooner or later. And all that will be left is by these weird references to him. I disagree because um, we live in a culture now where everything is preserved. Um, you know, we've got we've got recordings that people are making an effort to preserve. Um, people take old films uh, and and digitize them to make sure that they they are going to be safe. And and you know, people like to do things with metadata to make sure we can always find them. Um, <clears throat> you know, there's, there's always archives and things like that that exist. I I after giving it more thought, I don't buy it. And it's it's a very it's a very I'm sure it's a very well thought out and very popular study, but I think that's that's just a- academia for academia. I don't think there's a real substance behind it. I think it's it, I'm sure it's a it's a it's a lovely and, and cute notion, but I don't think it I don't think it exists. I think there will be a point where we look at the echoes of Elvis and recognise them as Elvis shaped, but not really know. I think the, the I think the touch point here is Robin Hood. But look at Groucho, look at Groucho Marx. We know Groucho Marx references from Bugs Bunny cartoons, and and like some of us were lucky enough to like still watch black and white movies on a Tuesday afternoon when we kept home from school because we had a headache. But I feel that in two generations' time, like people won't even know who Bugs Bunny is. Okay, um, to address the robin hood point i think i i absolutely know what you mean <clears throat> and uh, you know i made that allusion earlier shakespeare and robin hood we don't really know uh if, if fine but the the point is we now we have a record of who elvis was where he grew up who his mum was why he wrote the, you know sorry why, why he did the first recording for his mum and where he went to sun studios and all these various things we've got these pieces of information that we can tie back to the myth so yes while i completely agree with you that we will always have this elvis shaped idea those that are interested can go back and find out okay what was this this legend that we all still know about as elvis um you know what what did it actually mean who was the man who inhabited the jumpsuit um we we've got that cultural reference which has only existed in the last i don't know 70 years that we've been able to archive things in the fidelity that we can now that's only existed in a few lifetimes and so all of the other cultural and historical touchstones that we have they they're never going to work in the same way because we now have hard information in a way and documentary information in a way that we never did before maybe maybe scholars of of elvis will engage with all of that um apparently hard evidence Mm -hmm. um but the rest of us aren't. We're going to be consuming uh, Elvis-shaped sweets instead. Sure. And uh, what? Okay. So, is that any different from what happened back in the day? Um, you know, the the myth of a person when they are at the height of fame 
can very quickly overtake uh, and subsume the actual person that's underneath. I don't think time necessarily has to do that. I mean, time always will, but fame and the public eye and the way journalism works and the speed at which journalism works, that I think can happen anyway, regardless of time. That's why it's valid to offer this way of explaining things through somebody like Elvis, because Elvis is recent enough that you think you know him and is documented enough that you think you know him. And important enough that everybody, of course, everybody knows what Elvis is. But what they're saying is they're drawing your attention to those to those things. Yes, <laughs> Danny, you've, you've read it. Is that what is that what they're getting at? Um, yeah, I, I think I think that the idea is that the idea is nothing new. We forget we forget about people. We forget about things. And even if it is documented, like there's lots of documentaries. We forget about Dre. That I oh, I forgot about Dre today. Damn it. I can't believe you forgot about Dre. Not even for a second can you forget about Dre. Do you know what it is as well? Because I tie Dre with the game. Whenever <laughs> I remember that I forgot about Dre, I also lose the game. <laughs> <laughs> For this week's book recommendation, we're going back to a comedy and a property that spanned the small screen and the page. The Fall and Rise of Reginald Perrin is now available on Audible, written and read by David Nobbs. The series is probably famous, uh, or most famous in the UK, in its TV form and was rebooted a few years ago with Martin Clunes. If you want to know what a British existential crisis really feels like, pick up your free copy by signing up to Audible's incredible service. There's a huge selection of books to choose from, and if you find something you're not keen on, you can swap it out for something else, no questions asked. Just go to audibletrial.com slash leopard to start your free trial and let Audible know you sent us or we sent you. That's the way it works, that way around. If you've never tried audiobooks, now is your chance. audibletrial.com slash leopard. We'll follow up on casting our hypothetical Eddie, the shipboard computer, next week, but for now... We're going to talk about a popular science fiction and comedy writer and a frustrated performer. Douglas Adams is a writer of both fiction and non-fiction and is probably most famous for creating a book series called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. He created a universe that touched so many people's lives, so I thought it would be remiss not to spend the rest of this episode celebrating his work. He was a frustrated performer. He was, um, he was a musician. Yep. He was a left-handed guitar player. Yep. Um, I always thought that was nice. Um, mm. um, he was friends with Dave Gilmore mm-hmm. from Pink Floyd and mm. came up with the that album title, Division Bell. That was him. Oh, well. Oh, well, that's nice. Isn't that nice? On his 42nd birthday, as a birthday present, Dave Gilmore allowed Douglas Adams on stage to perform with them. Oh, well. Oh, that's the highest of praise. He was also a comedy performer. He performed in Footlights as well as writing. And he was in an episode of Monty Python's Flying Circus. Oh, was he now? He was. He was the surgeon in, guess what number episode? 42. Yes. Didn't I read somewhere that he was in the reboot? Didn't they reboot the radio play like about 10 years ago? In 2005, Dirk Maggs adapted uh, uh, Life, the Universe and Everything, third book. Uh, Dirk Maggs adapted that into a radio series and... Uh, got all the original cast together, all the original living cast. And then for Agrijag, they used an audiobook recording um, that Adams had done. So Adams had done an audiobook, which is now subsequently quite hard to get hold of. Um, 
But that's what they took the audio from. I think that's in him. Like his writing, one of the things that I admire about his writing is that he has an amazing comic rhythm. He knows how to set up a punchline. He knows how to deliver a punchline rhythmically in a sentence to make it much funnier than it actually is. So I think that could be transferred into kind of performance and thinking about how words are, are delivered and whatnot. I mean, think of think of the best lines. They're normally a short sentence after after a long explanation. So where it was swallowed by a small dog. <laughs> yes. Think about that sentence. Where it swallowed It's a button. Swallowed by a dog. Not that funny. Where it was con- you know, swallowed by a small dog is the small dog is the perfect thing to end that phrase and it's to do with the rhythm of the sentence. So the other thing that I wanted to talk about was his role as a technologist. Um I've always kind of dismissed this because well, he's an Apple fan, and Apple fans are just fans of Apple. They're not necessarily fans of technology. They're not necessarily that isn't you've 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 said that before, and it isn't true. I, I kind of just want to make that point. That isn't that that isn't how Apple appreciation works at all. They're marketed as the most uh, anti-technology, the most consumer-friendly, the most easy to use. Yeah, they don't market themselves as saying, "Look, this is an amazing bit of technology. This, this is look, this is this is a really simple bit of technology that just works." And so, the people who who buy Apple things, uh, who just buy Apple things, um, appreciate it on the fact that yeah, it just works and and that's fine. The people who are actually Apple fans um, are the people who who appreciate uh, the underlying technology that goes into them and the real incredible work that goes into making those products. So. I've been disavowed of this anyway. Like lots of people that I know think very deeply about technology use Apple because it's really good. But I've always had kind of that hangover thought that, oh, yeah, no, of course he's a, of course he's a fan of Apple. So he's not necessarily a fan of technology. That, that, that was a, a thing that I never cl- that clicked together in my mind. But doing a bit of research, I've actually looked into it and he was an incredibly smart cookie i mean he had an email address before there was internet like yeah i mean that uh, I'll, I'll make the point that that's not technically possible he had an email address before the web yes okay he had an email address yeah. before the web it is they, they are different things yes okay so i wanted to ask about this because this brings me to a point that i can i can uh, expose my ignorance because i was going to ask about this he wrote and presented a documentary called Hyperland. Yes, he did. And that was in 1990, and it was about hypertext. Yes. Later on in that year, Tim Berners-Lee would propose the World Wide Web project. Yes. So he was on that. He was on the same track of thinking as the person that invented the World Wide Web. Yes, but they were both on the track of a guy in the 1960s who came up with the idea of hypertext. Of course, yeah, but... Like loads of people had ideas in the 1960s, you know, you've got to be smart to jump on the ones that are actually good. So, what is the difference between World Wide Web and Internet? You're like, so the, the, the Internet is a series of, of networks, connected networks. So, you connect to your Internet service provider, which then connects to a network, which connects to a network, and there's no, there's no centralized hub that it all goes through. Email is something that runs on the Internet, and the web is also something that runs on the Internet. So, both can um, exist without the other. It gets complicated when you look at like Gmail because you use Gmail on the web, but you know, Gmail existed, uh, you know, 20, well, about 30 years after email was invented. Um, and so things like message boards, uh, not, not message boards, sorry, the things like the news groups, um, news groups existed 
uh, before the web. Um, there was a thing called, yeah, called message boards. Um, BBSs were sort of an idea of the internet. They it wasn't, wasn't exactly, but it was a forerunner where you could dial a number. Um, so actually, uh, b- bulletin board services are, are a good example. So, a little bit like teletext, you could dial a number on your phone with a modem and you would get a page from someone else's modem. Um, and the internet effectively is a way of connecting all of those computers up together so that they can all talk together in the same language and then they can run a thing like email or like the web but yeah no no he was a very smart cookie to to recognize the potential of this and, and say okay this deserves a documentary like he's obviously not just an apple fan he was a, a thinker of tech i know we touched on it before but he kind of was involved in the h2g2 which was Wikipedia before Wikipedia? Yeah, we literally found out last week that it, it that it was Wikipedia before Wikipedia. Oh, did you talk about that last week? Yes. Did so I didn't get to tell you that I wrote the Warsaw entry. <laughs> Sadly you weren't on that episode, but uh yeah. So my uh my entry on the H2G2 <coughs> website um was actually on on the Warsaw entry rather than the Warsaw entry. Um the bit of mine that's remaining reads Warsaw should not be confused with the similarly named Warsaw in the West Midlands, England. Clever observers will be able to spot several differences. The first and most important is geography. While Warsaw is often described as in Poland, Warsaw is not. Another key difference is that while Warsaw has the Warsaw Pact, Warsaw has the Warsaw Illuminations. (laughs) Both places have their charms, but families who wish to delight under the glow of hot wires sealed in a vacuum should go to Warsaw, and those who want to go to Poland should not. (laughs) <laughs> that is a really good adam's cadence as yeah well. that's that's what lovely. i was doing when i did it yeah yeah, yeah. thank you man no, that's but, lovely that really that really comes across i wrote that when i was about 19 oh fuck you for being that clever one of the things that really surprised me when looking into him is that he was a, he described himself as a radical atheist i i didn't think that i always got the impression that the that it wasn't complete atheism that there was some level of well, there might be, but he explicitly says he called himself a radical a- atheist, so people wouldn't ask if he was really agnostic. Yeah, I, I can, I can understand that. That is surprising. He was, a, he was a massive friend of Dawkins as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, Dawkins even dedicated um, one of his books to him, which is absolutely surprising because Dawkins has little or no sense of humour, as far as I can make out. Um, do, do you want to know my last thing that I found out about Douglas Adams? Mm-hmm. Yeah, dude. He was cremated with a towel. Oh. oh, I hope that was. I hope that was per his wishes. I hope they didn't just go. Oh, yeah, that's the thing. He 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 did the thing with towels. <laughs> yeah, I, does it matter? He doesn't know. As as a radical atheist, it doesn't really because he's dead. No, he's it doesn't really care, matter in a cosmic sense. Uh, no, but I, I because he got he he didn't want to keep being the hitchhiker's guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like the idea that maybe he would have come back to it at some point. Um, but yeah, I, I hope that it was it was part of his wish um, to to be buried with it, and it wasn't just a millstone around his neck, which I don't think is a phrase. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, I, I think that's that's a love that's a lovely thing e- either way. And with that, we call it a night, John. Where can people go to find out what you're up to? Best places to find me at the moment. If you want to hear me talking with my friend Nick about uh, running and fitness and tech, you can go to runnerpod.com. If you want to hear me talk to Mark Steadman about um, all the things that he needs to fix in his life, then go to thread.fm. <laughs> oh, wow. Brutal. 
Danny Smith, what are you up to? Um, you can generally find me. Um, I, I check Twitter a lot, so uh, I'm at probably drunk on Twitter. And if uh, you go to my website, that is edgetrinkets.co, um, then uh, you can find some of my writings and stuff on there. And that just about wraps it up for The Leopard. Do get in touch to share your thoughts. All the links you'll need are at btlpodcast.com, along with all of our past episode links and show notes. You can email us at uh, feedback at btlpodcast.com and find us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks again for uh, Audible for sponsoring this episode. Don't forget to pick up your free audiobook and start your free 30-day trial at audibletrial.com slash leopard. And we'd very very much appreciate a review or a uh, thumbs up or any other way that you can make us feel special we'll be back next thursday so until then share and enjoy Sex between human dolphins isn't unusual. It's fairly unusual, Dan. There was an author called Malcolm Brenner wrote a book called Wet Goddess. Oh. <laughs> Based on his nine-month sexual relationship living no. in a Florida land amusement park oh. in 1970. Oh, God. <laughs> that is not going to be our audible recommendation. <laughs>